This evening we'll continue our study of the, the Gospel of Luke as we uh, come to the, the end of that study together. And uh, we'll be looking particularly tonight at Luke chapter 22, verses 39 through 46. And uh, while you're turning there, let me uh, pray for us before we uh, begin. Let's pray. Gracious God, we do uh, come to you on, on this night. And Lord, we are grateful once again for your, for your love and your truth, which you have communicated to us in your word. And so, Lord, we thank you that we have this opportunity to come to, to sit under you and under your word. I pray, Lord, that you would be with us as we, uh, as we gather and as I uh, bring this passage to your people. May you, Lord, work through uh, the words that I speak. Would you give me the words to speak, the truth that your people need to hear? May you give us ears to hear, eyes to see, hearts to believe, and may your spirit work in our hearts that we might walk in obedience to you as lights in this world that you have placed us. We thank you and pray all this in Jesus' name, amen. So Luke chapter 22, verses 39 through 46, this is the word of the Lord. And he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in an agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Well, this is the word of our God. Thanks be to God for his holy and inerrant word. Well, there can be no doubt that stress has a major impact on our lives, right? And of course, how we, how we deal with stress has a major impact on the quality of our lives. According to one article that I read, uh, stress can be a great motivator, right? It can drive us to, to, to get things done and achieve what we might call short-term success. But it can also have a very negative impact on us, particularly when it becomes long-term. It can wreak havoc on our relationships, our, our job performance, and certainly on our health. And according to, to one study, the top 10 stressors are as follows. Uh, death of a spouse or child, uh, divorce, marital separation, imprisonment, the death of a close family member, personal injury or illness, getting married, losing your job, marital reconciliation, and 
lastly of the 10, which some of you may find surprising, and I'm sorry to bring this up to Dr. Thomas, but it's retirement. <laughs> the, the, the thing that many of us work towards our entire life, according to this study, is actually a great cause of stress in our lives. Uh, one thing I think that should be on this list that I think they left off, but which I'm convinced uh, is because it's something that I uh, find to be a major stressor in my own life, and that is watching your children perform, whether it's athletics or music or whatever it might be. Uh, it seems to be a, a, an opportunity for great uh, stress, but also of great joy, uh, of course. Uh, but according to this study, you can, you can actually calculate how likely you are to become ill by adding up the number of stressors uh, that you have in uh, your life. But why do I bring that up, this idea of, of stress and anxiety? Well, because we are in a stressful and anxious moment in Jesus' life and ministry, aren't we? Right, we, we see here in this passage the extreme anguish that Jesus underwent when and how he dealt with it in Gethsemane. Luke calls it the Mount of Olives, uh, but Matthew and Mark uh, make it clear that the location is more specifically uh, Gethsemane. Uh, but it was this anguish that, that Jesus underwent and, and, of course, did so perfectly in anticipation of him taking on the greatest stress of humanity, which is our sin and guilt uh, before God, so that we might be free to love and, and serve him in our lives and to do so even for all Eternity. Now, in terms of Luke's gospel and the, and the context of uh, where we are, the, the stage, right, is clearly set. Jesus is now in, in Jerusalem. Uh, the chief priests and, and scribes are really, you know, full tilt in terms of seeking an opportunity to, to kill him. Satan has entered into Judas to betray him. Uh, Jesus has exposed really the unfaithfulness of his disciples in, in, in pointing out they will all fall away. That's a detail that, that Matthew and Mark provide, not Luke, in, in indicating that this is a, actually a fulfillment of a prophecy in Zechariah thirteen seven when it says, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. And so this is a Really, a, a dire time, right? This isn't a this isn't a, a pretty picture for Jesus and his disciples, and for that matter, the the future of this church that he has promised uh, to build. And consider for a moment, right, the the sobering reality that this would have looked like, right? Jesus has been preparing them for his soon departure. He's been instructing them in the nature of, of true religion, right? Telling them it's not by works of the law, but by grace through faith alone, and that true worship is not in Jerusalem or, or temple-based, but centered upon Christ and his word, that the real Passover is 
uh, or the true and fullest expression of the feast is found in him, the true Passover lamb, who would sacrifice himself by shedding his blood and establishing the, the new covenant and the fulfillment of all the promises of God. And now he's telling them they'll all fall away. It's not a very optimistic picture that he's painting, at least not at first glance. And, and certainly not when we understand the, the full story, if we understand how the, the story ends, that, that God works through this very dire situation to accomplish his perfect plan and purpose. Right, the, the disciples' denial and inadequacy does not thwart the purposes of God, does it? Rather, it in many ways underscores the necessity of what Jesus is about to do. But this evening we're going to look at this passage we have before us in two parts. First, Jesus' agony, and secondly, the disciples' apathy. So first of all, Jesus' agony. As I've already mentioned, uh, we see here the extreme anguish that Jesus underwent at this moment in his life and ministry. And, and really, we see both the, the intense anguish that he experienced in his human nature as he faced the reality of the cursed death of the cross. But also, we see this perfect submission of Christ to the Father, despite, again, humanly speaking, his desire to forego the cross. And I think it's important for us to really grasp the reality of the agony that Jesus underwent here. You know, I think sometimes maybe when we read this passage and, you know, we read this prayer, for example, in verse 42, and, you know, he says, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. I think sometimes we might read that and hear it in an almost, you know, que sera, sera sort of fashion, you know, as if he's, you know, his request is somewhat cursory and, right, as if he's saying, Lord, it would be great if we could kind of skip over this, but I, you know, I really know that's not what's happening here. I'm really fated to do this because we agreed upon this in eternity past, so whatever you want to do is fine. But no, text tells us he experienced real anguish. He was somewhat tormented over the reality of death and the horrible death that he was about to undergo. And the word that's used here to describe it in verse 44 is agonia, which Phil Riken describes as the bitter striving of a fierce conflict. There's a conflict going on here with Jesus. And 
We're sort of diving into the, the mysteries of the incarnation and uh, the two natures of, of Christ. We can ask Dr. Thomas to explain it in greater detail some other time, but we see, right, this, this real wrestling of the human will with the divine will in Jesus. You see, it was in accordance with the eternal plan and purpose of God, that agreement between the Father and the Son in eternity past that the Son of God would redeem a people for himself by his redemptive work, which included the suffering, the pain of death, bearing the, the sin burden of his people on the cross, but we see here in this passage in his human nature, he agonized over this. He didn't want to die. Not like this. And so we, we ought not read this story and think that Jesus just easily resigned himself to this painful and cursed death. No, he agonized over it, the text says, to the point that he was physically distressed. Right, it says he fell to the ground. His, his sweat became like drops of blood, which I understand is a medical condition that can occur in occasions of extreme stress, which of course this was. And, and we read this interesting detail and I'm kind of curious who the angel was, but it says that an angel came to strengthen him in verse 43 in this moment. And it highlights for us the real struggle, the, the real humanity of Jesus in the incarnation, of course, and, and particularly this experience in Gethsemane as he anticipated that cursed death that he was about to undergo. And it's an important detail for us to see because it, it highlights for us how Jesus truly was human. He truly was our representative in his earthly life. And of course, the author of Hebrews uh, emphasizes this for us. For example, in chapter 2, verses 17 and 18, it says that he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. And there's two parts to that statement that are of great relevance, I think, to our passage. One is that he was made like us in every way course, without sin, but he was truly and, and fully human like you and me. And therefore, as our true representative, he truly can sympathize with us in our frailties, in our struggles. All right, notice your header verse, Hebrews 4.15 He's been tempted in every respect as we are, yet without sin, right? Our, our experience, our struggles, our temptations, 
are not foreign to him. They're very real to him. He identifies with us in our, our weakness, our temptation even it seems to stray perhaps even from the will of God. He knew what it was to anguish over something, to anguish over death, to not want to die. But of course, we know that the, the full depth of Jesus' anguish was not just about the physical death that was before him, nor was it about the severity of that death, which it was. The cross was a horrible death to die, but as we see here in the, in the text, it was the cup that he was about to endure, the, the portion, as it was, that was given to him. What portion is that? What cup? The cup of God's wrath that would be poured out on him for our sins. That was the, the full agony that Jesus looked toward. The cup of God's wrath because on the cross, Jesus bore the judgment of God that was due to us for our sin so that we might be given fellowship with him through Jesus Christ, our representative head. It was the, the cup, the, the portion that Jesus bore for sinners like you and me. And this was the, the anguish that Jesus endured. And because he was faithful in his distress, he does serve as our good and faithful high priest. The one who has undergone all of these things without sin, who has conquered them, has risen from the dead and is now seated at the right hand of the Father. He is a good and faithful high priest who can truly sympathize with every weakness. He was truly tempted and tried. And so that is a great encouragement to you and me. That whatever it is that you are struggling through, wrestling through this night in your life, that you can take it to him that you ought not hesitate to come before him because he does understand and he does sympathize truly with your weakness. Notice, right, he tells his disciples two different times. He says, pray that you may not enter into temptation, verses 40 and 46. Those aren't just you know, empty words that were spoken by someone who had never been through that, who had never been tempted. No, Jesus had been tempted. He had been, as it were, where they were. 
and had faced it down successfully. He said it as one who was currently in distress and who provided an example of how to respond when faced with real temptation and and deep distress, right? Notice the words of verse 44. It says, and being in agony, what did he do? He, He prayed more earnestly. You see, Jesus knew the source of his strength. He knew that when faced with toils and troubles on every side, he must take it to the Lord in prayer. He knew that he must submit himself to the Father no matter how undesirable it might be. Jesus, indeed, is a good and faithful high priest. There's no struggle with which he can't sympathize. And so we have to ask ourselves the question, what are we waiting for, right? Where do we go when we are faced with trouble? Where do we go when a a loved one dies, when your spouse leaves you? When your employer tells you that your services are no longer needed here, when you find out that you have some incurable and or debilitating disease, when you figure out that retirement isn't all that it's cracked up to be, where do you go? Do you take it to the Lord in prayer? Do you turn to him expressing your dependence upon him? Do you submit to his will even in your life even if it doesn't match your personal desires? Our passage tonight tells us to to look to him that he is a good and faithful high priest who delights to hear our prayers. And indeed, not only that, but we know elsewhere in Scripture, he he not only hears our prayers, he intercedes for us. Is that what we do? Or do we, like the disciples in this passage, fall asleep? That's our second point, the disciples' apathy In verse 45, we read that when Jesus rose from prayer, he returned to find the disciples sleeping for sorrow. Now, uh, Matthew and Mark mentioned that Jesus came back to check on them three different times and found them sleeping. Luke only mentions the once. Uh, Same same problem, though. Um, uh, but, But what does it mean they were sleeping for sorrow? Well, it means they were sleeping because they were sad. Um, they, they were sleeping because maybe they were disappointed, um, possibly because things weren't going the way they'd hoped, right? Jesus wasn't going to overthrow Rome, for example. That's one possibility. Possibly it was because maybe some of what Jesus was saying was actually starting to, to hit home, that this wasn't going to be an easy road, that death was on the doorstep, but, but nevertheless, instead of 
staying engaged and doing what Jesus had called them to do, the text tells us they, they fell asleep. They, they disengaged from the realities that they were facing. They found an escape. And sometimes that's exactly what we do, isn't it? Sometimes we find it easier to just disengage. We don't bother to, to labor in prayer over things that are happening in our lives, right? Sometimes we, we find it easier to just give up when things aren't going the way we want them to go. Sometimes we'd, we'd rather coast than do the hard work and blame God for not making our lives the way they ought to be. But when we do that, we, we cut ourselves off, don't we, from the, the love of God, the, the grace of God. We don't get to see the, the power of God at work. At my previous church, I had a, someone who attended our church who was a, uh, an electrician. And, and he would talk about how well, the dangers of working with uh, electricity and, right, that, that you have to be careful when you are working with electricity because there's this tremendous power source that you can tap into. And if you don't know what you're doing, bad things can happen very quickly. But if you know what you're doing and you know how to tap into that power source, amazing things can actually happen. You have access to a, a seemingly unlimited source of power. Dear friends, isn't that, or should I say, how much greater is the source of power that we have access to in the Lord, through the Lord in prayer. That when we trust in him to accomplish his purpose in our lives, regardless of the circumstances we are facing, we can see God work in amazing ways. And, and God tells us right, in his word throughout scripture the, about the, the power of, of prayer and how, how prayer is the, the antidote, as it were, to so many of the troubles in our lives, right? Fear and worry and anxiety and, and the illusion of self-sufficiency. That we go to the Lord in prayer and we, we see God's hand at work in our lives but so often, rather than pray and submit ourselves to the, the will of the Father, we don't bother. Why? Well, perhaps we think we're sufficient in ourselves. We think we can, through our ingenuity and resolve, that we can pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps and get things done. 
The reality is, though, like the disciples, we, we sleep in slumber. We give in to temptation. We forget that we have a good and faithful high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, so that we can hold fast to him. Like the disciples, we fail to be faithful in prayer. But thankfully, Jesus is a good and faithful high priest. One who has been made like us in every way, tempted in every way as we are our true representative. Despite our our frailties and our failures. And there's a beautiful connection here that one of the the commentators point out, and I, I can't remember which one, but the connection is between this garden of Gethsemane and the first garden, the garden of Eden. And of course you remember in that first garden, the first man, Adam, failed in his test, his test to believe the word of God. But the good news is that in this garden, the garden of Gethsemane, the second Adam, Jesus succeeded where the first Adam failed, that he is the one who is faithful to the end. As the Apostle Paul summarizes in Romans 5, 18 and 19, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Thanks be to God that it is through the obedience, the sufficiency of Christ, right? His sinless life and substitutionary death that we are made right with God by grace through faith in him. And it is in this Adam, the second Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ, that we find our true identity. You see, he knows our deepest distress. He knows the deepest distress that anyone could ever know, right? The wrath of God because of our sin and he has overcome this distress through his redemptive work so that we might have fellowship with him. And I like what both Phil Riken and Sinclair Ferguson point out about this story and, and that is that the message we should hear is to focus more on Christ and what he has done than upon ourselves and our circumstances. You see, the failure of the disciples was that they focused on themselves. They focused upon their circumstances, right? They were brought to despair when the the circumstances around them overwhelmed them. Instead of focusing on Christ and what he has done and his promises for his people. 
And so, dear friends, the word that we must hear tonight is do not grow weary in your circumstances or be filled with doubt and fear because of the things that are beyond your control, but look to the one who overcomes all of our doubts and fears, who has defeated the greatest distress, nailing it to the cross so that all who look to him might be forgiven and have life forevermore in him. So hear the call to to watch and to pray and to look to him who watches and prays for you so that you will not agonize over the things of this world, but that you might find true peace in the one who has borne your agony for you, the Lord Jesus Christ, so that we might live by grace through faith in him alone. Let's pray. Our gracious God in heaven, we do give you thanks and praise for your great love for us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And Lord, we are amazed that you, despite our continual failures and, and frailties, delight to hear our prayers and you call us, Lord, to look to you, to call upon you wherever we are, whatever circumstance it might be, to call upon you, to look to you and to trust in you and that you, Lord, will indeed guide us home. And so we pray for this And we ask, Lord, that you would send us from here, that we might be the lights of your truth, the lights of hope in the world around us. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.